Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Beijing rules no open CE election for 2017. Occupy Central gears up but doesn't announce a date. And brokers say the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect passes another test. First, a little audio tease of what's to come. Fight for democracy and never give up. Pro-democracy demonstrators after the NPC announcement. Having this specific decision, it is undermining the high degree of autonomies of Hong Kong, as well as a great role to one country, two system. Occupy organizer Chan King Man, fellow leader Benny Tai, says action is coming. It will not be just uh, in the coming few days, so it will be sometime in the coming weeks. So sometime in the coming weeks, but we understand there are lots of police out on the streets this morning, two or three on every corner. That coming in from one of our correspondents uh, down in Central. In markets, in addition to Occupy Central, three massive events will mark the first couple of weeks of this month of September, today being the first, the ECB policy meeting, the Alibaba listing, and the upcoming launch of Apple's new products. And of course, on the program this morning, we'll be looking at some more mundane matters. Where do I put my money in such a way that I can protect my money in the next leg of the cycle? And these guys are thinking long term, maybe not three months, maybe not six months. But over time, I need somebody that can go short. I need somebody that can protect me in a rising rate environment. And the only thing they see is, uh, you know, is certain types of hedge funds. We'll hear more from him a little bit later in the program. That is Fabio Salvadelli. He says a lot of money is turning to hedge funds for some more complicated trading over the next uh, six months. Here's what Asia is doing right now. The futures have been higher in Japan. We'll get the cash read in a minute. Also, Australia slightly lower. The dollar yen now 104.17. So that's the dollar stronger against the yen. And the euro continues to weaken against the dollar. The euro now at 1.312 U.S. dollars. We'll be talking about some strategies with the big ECB meeting this week, a little bit later in this program. And the pound is at 12 Hong Kong dollars, 85 cents. The Australian dollar, 93.28 U.S. cents. Well, let's get into some of our uh, top stories this morning. First, I'll tell you that our, our guests on the program are Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, as usual on a Monday morning. We'll also be hearing from Professor Steve Keen at Kingston University in London. Professor Keen will be talking about the faltering eurozone and why fiscal austerity may be making things worse. But first, the political and the impact on Hong Kong. As you heard in our news, the NPC Standing Committee has agreed to give Hong Kong one person, one vote in CE elections. But candidates will need to have the backing of more than half of the nominating committee. RTHK's Priscilla Ung has more. According to the Deputy Secretary General of the NPCSC, Li Fei, the composition of the future nominating committee would virtually be a copy of the election committee that elected C.Y. Leung as CE in 2012. The four subsectors would be untouched, and even the ratios between the various special interest groups would not change. Mr. Li added that CE hopefuls can only formally become candidates with the backing of more than half the nominating committee. This would ensure that the nomination of candidates is a collective decision. The number of candidates, meanwhile, would be capped at two or three to ensure that there would be real but not excessive competition in the race for the top job. All candidates are also required to love the country and love Hong Kong. That's Priscilla Ung reporting. Democratic Party Chair Emily Lau says it's not going to be a real election. This is not 
a proposal for one person, one vote, universal suffrage. Maybe one person, one vote, yes. But who have you got to choose? You only have candidates uh, selected uh, by the nominating committee, which of course consists of uh, vested interests from the business and professional groups. And these people will look over their shoulder to Beijing to see uh, who Beijing wants. We'll hear from the business sector in a minute. China commentator Mark O'Neill says there's no room for compromise from this central government, and he's concerned. The current government is very hardline. It's hardline on foreign policy. It's hardline on religion. It's hardline on control of the Internet, the media, human rights lawyers. It's very clear. So they made their decision yesterday. It was very well signaled in advance. They're not going to change it. So I'm, af- I'm afraid it's a dangerous moment for Hong Kong. I, I just see confrontation between the two sides. Um, views are very strongly held on both sides, and there's no room for compromise anymore. That's the China commentator, Mark O'Neill. The time is now eight minutes after eight o'clock. We've got Barry Wood coming up in a few short minutes. But first, a little commentary from Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So lots to talk about on the program this morning on the macro front, and we'll get to that. But first, does the business community see this NPC decision as positive? Well, uh, I think business and investors tend to be fairly hard-headed about these things. And and in particular, when there's uh, change going on in a country, what they want to make sure is that a a number of things before they invest and before they decide whether they're going to keep their money um, in in the country. First of all, they want to make sure that there are free and open markets, that they can get their money out when they need to. And that's certainly still true here in Hong Kong. They want to make sure that their assets are not going to be frozen by the the government. And that's still true. um, sort of here in Hong Kong, and we still have the rule of law, we still have property rights. So I think business will look at this in a fairly um, sort of uh, cold-nosed way and say, you know, f- for them in terms of investing in Hong Kong, not a lot has, has changed at the moment. Now, clearly, what we don't want to see is we don't want to see protests turning violent. We don't want to see troops on the streets, those types of things, which will then maybe would start to concern some international investors. But right now, you know, in business is going to go on as normal. But if China promised universal suffrage and didn't deliver. What makes you think that the rule of law is safe? Well, I mean, there's going to be many sort of versions of of democracy around the world. I mean, you know, I I come from the West and, and, you know, this is hard to square with the the type of democracy that I'm used to in in the UK. But honestly speaking, after seeing what the NPC announced, do you see that as democracy? Well, clearly it leaves no room for discussion whatsoever. Um, and, and, and I find it sort of a shame because in some ways Hong Kong could be a laboratory for, um, you know, a different type of democracy in China sort of overall. But clearly the NPC is not prepared to allow that and, and doesn't want to see um, th- this type of experiments going on in, in Hong Kong. So clearly it's going to te- keep very tight control over it. And, and this is not the way in which, um, you know, we would regard democracy in the West, certainly not. Do you think people might reject the business community's position on this? I mean, one they from what you said it seems that they're looking at money first mm-hmm. making sure that their ability to make money that that actually trumps maybe what they feel personally is a real democracy versus a a fake vote and and also do you think that people the average person might might say aren't you worried that if contracts and personal property are lost hong kong is sunk well if if 
contracts and personal property are lost. I think any any country is sunk from a business perspective, not not just Hong Kong. And I think you know, the, in some ways, you know, the the, the Hong Kong government um, by not dealing with certain basic issues here in Hong Kong, income inequality, um, you know, the inability of many people to be able to afford housing, that is what has fueled, in many ways, this desire for a more open election and you know something that's more akin to a Western style of democracy. And had the government dealt with some of those issues a while ago or started to show signs that it was dealing with that, maybe, you know, people would not feel so agitated to, that, you know, they've got to try and change the system in, in order to better their way of life. Doesn't that get at wanting to get a better leader and that, um, you know, finding a leader that is truly accountable to the people instead of to the 1,200 people on the nominating committee? Yeah, I mean, there, there will be a lack of legitimacy of any leader under this, uh, under this type of system because um, clearly, you know, this is not uh, an election where there is a choice of candidates and, and you know, you want to have, um, you know, a, a legitimate election. And maybe, you know, one of the things that will happen is there will be a write-in candidate, um, you know, and if many, many thousands, you know, vote for a write-in candidate, candidate, it does rather derail the legitimacy of the election sort of overall. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, all of the macro questions as well, whether or not uh, this will enhance or impede uh, fund flows into Hong Kong. And uh, so we'll, we'll save that for a few minutes because we'd like to say good morning to Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, for a little perspective from Washington. Barry, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Well, I, I don't want to ask you too many questions about Hong Kong and China, but I did note that this story was on the front page of the New York Times, at least uh, in its online editions this morning. And I'm just wondering whether or not you expect there to be much attention in uh, Washington on the NPC decision. Well, you're right about the New York Times. I saw the story there as well. But I uh, offer this uh, rejoinder, and that is, given ISIS in Iraq and in Syria, given Ukraine, given the Mexican-U.S. border, my guess is that's a one-day story for the Times, and there won't be much debate in Washington. But I could be wrong. So there will be a lot of debate about uh, Ukraine and ISIS uh, in Syria, whether there is a strategy. Uh, the president said last week there was no strategy. Of course, he meant in the context of a lot of other things. Um, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about the economy, because I don't think the geopolitical has had a very bit of big effect on uh, economic action and markets just in the past week. It may soon. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the economy. American consumers have become a bit thriftier. The uh, household purchases data that was out was not very good. It actually decreased in July, which I think surprised a lot of people. I note that not a single economist among 79 economists polled by Bloomberg projected uh, any kind of decrease in consumer spending. So that was a surprise. What's happening with the U.S. economy? Well, I think uh, despite what you've just said, things are perking along, and they're perking along pretty well. Don't forget that GDP report, which was a revision for the second quarter, which showed growth of 4.2% on an annual basis. Sure, pretty but a lot, a lot of that was building inventory as well. Yes, it was. You, I mean, no doubt about that. But, boy, we're not used to seeing a 42 figure, particularly after we saw a decline in the first quarter. So that's good news. And then look at the stock market. We've had the S&P over 
2000. We've had more records on the Dow and the S&P. And uh, we've got an employment report coming this week that probably is going to be pretty good, over 200,000 jobs. So, and let's not forget car sales. I mean, it looks like car sales are at 16.6 million annual basis. That would be the best the best record since 2007. So it's not all doom and gloom on the economy in the U.S. And as you say, Ukraine, ISIS, that really hasn't impacted markets. So not to worry about the falling 10-year bond yield. Uh, I think you even said last week when we chatted and had our cup of coffee on a Monday morning that it was more <laughs> international factors than any doubts about the American economy. Yes, and I hold to that. I mean, look, I, I do think that uh, the strengthening dollar is a potential big problem because uh, the euro is weak. We're at $1.31 on the euro. We've got a European Central Bank meeting on Thursday. Uh, if the Europeans don't do something to uh, really stimulate, uh, they're flat on their backs. So that's not good. But look at the oil price, now $96, which is very good. So that gives a boost to the U.S. consumer. And uh, as you mentioned, the interest rate at 2.34% on a 10-year, that's incredible. So I think it is international development. And I think we have to also factor in what's going to happen with NATO and Obama's trip to Europe. He leaves on Tuesday. And this whole very scary fighting situation in Ukraine. Yes, I, I learned an interesting angle on what's happening with bond yields uh, from Chris Wood, the strategist at CLSA, just reading in his Greed and Fear um, newsletter that it's investors kind of discounting quantitative easing coming in Europe, that they would be um, that they're concerned about deflation. And that's why bond yields have sunk as much as they had. And the U.S. has followed because the American economy is probably in you know slightly better shape and it's a little safer to to also buy U.S. Treasuries than it is um, European Treasuries, so the whole thing is kind of working together. Does that sound plausible to you? It sounds very plausible, Brian. I think that's uh, spot on. Let's not forget as well, and I know your other guests probably will develop this idea, but the Germans are really seemingly putting their foot down. They're not going to allow Draghi at the European Central Bank to really further stimulate, and they're not going to do anything on fiscal stimulation. So there's a, a, another potential clash between the Germans and the European Union authorities, and that can't be good for the European economy. Oh, Peter Lewis is with me here in the studio. Peter, do you think that Mario Draghi's comments uh, when he spoke at Jackson Hole almost indicate that he feels very confident about uh, the political support he has in Germany? Because he was sounding like, look, inflation is falling to unacceptable levels now. We used to say that it was grounded, it was in control, but it's not now. Therefore, action is needed. Well, I, I think he's under a lot of pressure because there's a, a 2% inflation target in, in Europe and inflation is now 0.3%. So it's and, and, you know, there are four or five countries that are in outright deflation, including Italy and Spain. And if you look at all the 18 countries of the Eurozone, um, 15 of them now have inflation below 1%. So he's under pressure to deliver. I think it's going to be difficult for him, though, because I, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, as Barry just said, the, the Germans in particular will not like this. And there could well be, if he, if he was to launch a debt monetization program, some sort of QE program along the lines that we've seen in the US, there could well be some legal challenges to that, particularly um, coming from Germany, from the constitutional courts there. Um, and I think also he is concerned about the fact that 
will this actually work? I mean, if you look at bond yields in Germany, the 10-year um, yield is now at 0.89%. Um, so how much lower could you know, a QE program actually drive yields? It, it's hard to imagine that um, you know, printing a lot of money, in effect, to monetize some, some debt is going to actually well, drive yields much lower than this. Well, if you, you know, if you need to buy government bonds and you can get around 1% and it's in the context of deflation – i.e. prices going down, then maybe 1% doesn't look so bad. Yeah, if it, it, and, and that's the real issue. The, the, the issue is that global inflation is at 56-month lows now. Um, around the world, we're seeing... So are we in, in the danger? Barry, let me throw this to you. Are we in danger? I know you've never been a deflation supporter. I've squawked <laughs> about it uh, on this program uh, for a really long time because I think Europe needs to deflate, and I think America kind of needs to deflate to get more of a, uh, on par with the rest of the world, which has caught up in terms of abilities to uh, operate in this knowledge society or knowledge economy we have? Well, I'm going to change my tune. I think deflation, as uh, Peter just suggested, is a very real problem in Europe. Uh, They denied it for so long, but in that list of countries that Peter just went through, that's incontestable. That's happening. And uh, I think this is a problem. I mean, Europe has got to grow if they're going to get out of this mess. Peter, let me ask you, if I may, what do you expect from the European Central Bank on Thursday? Well, I I think they will talk a lot about um, possible strategies that they could take, um, but I think it's going to be very difficult for them to actually formally launch um, a a QE program. So I think, again, this will be um, a fine line that Draghi will try to um, to take, where he will try and give markets confidence that he's going to do everything that it takes, but he will stop short of, um, you know, launching a formal program simply because... I think um, there is real issues about whether he has the authority or the power to um, to even do that. So, Barry, overall, you're quite positive still on the American economy. Um, so do you think that, that what that means is that more money will flow into the dollar? Therefore, uh, with quantitative easing coming in Europe, that we should expect a a weaker euro and perhaps a weaker yen and a stronger U.S. dollar? Yeah, that makes sense to me, Brian. I think that is uh, likely to play out. And I don't think that's a problem for the U.S. authorities as long as we're dealing with, uh, you know, a a dollar-euro exchange rate of $1.31 or even $1.30, maybe even down to $1.25. But uh, if you start seeing a real threat of currency wars and people talking about that in the media, that's going to be another story. You know, the oil price decline is significant. But again, just to say on Europe, Brian, let's not forget that the Europeans, particularly the Germans and some of those new EU members, they export a lot of stuff to Russia. All of that is a big question mark now, and a lot of it is frozen. And if we're going to see more sanctions against Russia, that's going to hurt the Russians, but it's also going to hurt the European economy, and that is very worrisome. You're shaking your head in agreement. I, I agree with that. I, I think the you know the sanctions on Ukraine, um, they are um, on Russia, are hurting Russia, but they're hurting countries like Germany, for example, um, as well. And that's and that's adding to some of the deflationary um, sort of pressures that we're seeing in Europe. So you know this is going to be an ongoing theme over the coming weeks. So let's talk a little bit about uh, an actual trade that you could you could do. We talked about uh, 
the euro weakening against the dollar. So perhaps some people might want to go short the euro, maybe long the dollar. And do you think, Peter, because I know Japan is also a, a, an interest of yours, do you think that the short the yen, go long the Nikkei, which has been kind of moribund for a year, basically has gone sideways for a year, that that's about ready to re-energize that trade? Well, the, there's a huge correlation between the Nikkei and the, and the dollar yen. So, you know, yeah, I mean, you flip the uh, make an inverse uh, a chart of it and it's staggering. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's the main driver at the moment behind the Nikkei. But one of the problems, of course, is that the, the weaker yen hasn't actually particularly helped Japanese exporters um, sort of that much. They're still struggling, um, you know, to, to grow their revenues. So despite the weaker yen, they're not seeing um, a, a particularly strong increase in, in sales. And part of that is because there's still a lot of structural problems in Japan that need to be addressed. I mean, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the central bank has really done almost as much as it can, and it really needs the, the government now to go ahead and move ahead pretty quickly on some of the structural um, sort of reforms. Okay, Peter, stay with us. Barry, got to say goodbye. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll talk again uh, next week. Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. should mention we're back into our half-hour format here on Money for Nothing, so we'll wrap up at 8.30, and Backchat gets underway again with its full program coming up this morning, looking at constitutional reform. Well, the descent into hell is the way that France's former economy minister described austerity policies last week. The minister said that the high unemployment and low growth can be only overcome with pro-growth policies. Others also believe stimulus is needed. Kingston University professor Steve Keen advocates an act activist approach on the part of the government. He says austerity is doomed to fail. He said, look at Greece. Joblessness is 27 percent, a level that's on par with the Great Depression. Austerity sounds like a sensible thing because we make this analogy with our own households and think, well, if we've got too much debt, then what we do is we have to we should uh, spend less than we earn and therefore we'll save some money and we can pay the debt down. And that's correct for an individual. But when you apply it to an entire economy, uh, you then think, well, where does the money come from? Some economists have called for a sound money approach that emphasizes balanced budgets and other restraints on stimulus. But Professor Keene says that will only prolong the cycle of misery. He believes policymakers in the eurozone will eventually change tact, but uh, they could be stuck on austerity for another three years. The comparison between what's happening in England, where I am now, where the unemployment's down to 6.4%, in America, where it's down to 6%, etc., etc., compare that to Europe, where unemployment averages about twice as much as that, about 12%, and in some countries, it's worse than the Great Depression. So austerity is taking money out of the economy and thinking the economy will recover. It is insanely bad policy due to a very superficial understanding of what money is. And Professor Keene says it's time for governments to look seriously at eliminating the debt overhang of consumers through write-offs. The idea is that a reset is necessary and must be led by government. 
if you go back to the 1830s and run forward at the level of private debt, we have now got a higher level of private debt compared to GDP than we've ever had in history, with the sole exception of the peak that occurred back in 2010 uh, when, this, when this crisis uh, was you know, at its deepest. So private debt has become astronomically uh, a large burden on the economy. And previous societies, ancient societies, realise this tendency in their own systems for debt to grow faster than the economy and instituted the Jubilee. Yes, he refers to that, saying that ancient societies used a debt jubilee. He says uh, he's had to field some criticism that a debt write-off might only fuel risky behavior. That's known as moral hazard. Still, he doesn't believe that much alternative saying high debt among consumers is, uh, many alternatives rather, saying that high debt among consumers is relatively new. And to him, it looks unstable. We really don't need to have more than about 20 to 25% of GDP as a level of debt for mortgages in a well-functioning economy. America tend to be about the 35, uh, 25 to 35% range. So that's where we should be, and we've got ourselves to the 80 and 90% range. So that is uh, Professor Keane from uh, from Kingston University visiting with us uh, on this program. And we still have Peter Lewis with us from Peter Lewis Consulting. Peter, is a debt jubilee uh, an option? Well, I, I find it bizarre because, you know, one of the biggest um, sort of contributors to that debt is the government itself. And, you know, if the, if the government is then going to start writing off um, sort of private debt, I mean, you know, where is that going to come from? Presumably, you know, a lot of this debt, consumer debt is ultimately with banks, you know, the very banks that we've been trying to recapitalise since the financial crisis over the last few years and, and all that will do is put more strain on their balance sheets and will lead to central banks having to once again step in to either sort of bail them out or, um, you know, or strengthen them. So the answer to um, sort of too much debt is not more debt. Um, okay. you know, and this is where you know, a lot of the, you know, the financial system is going wrong at the moment. So let's take a little change in tact here and look at Hong Kong and Shanghai. We had the um, another test over the weekend, uh, brokerages in both Hong Kong and Shanghai. They said that the first full trial of the exchange of the upcoming Hong Kong-Shanghai link looked pretty good. Are you positive on this uh, upcoming link in October? Yeah, I, I am. I, I think, you know, this is, uh, this, this is good for both the, the Hong Kong and the Shanghai markets. It's good for international investors who want a more seamless way to, um, you know, access the, the, uh, the, the China markets, have smooth, you know, single settlement systems, you know, uh, ease of access through one, through one platform. This provides a lot of the things that international investors want to do. So I, I think, you know, this is very positive and I think it's going to help um, enormously, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the, the amount of investment that we see into the China markets in particular. Okay, we've got the China August manufacturing PMI today at 9 o'clock and the HSBC China manufacturing PMI at 9.45. Um, are you watching the Chinese economy really closely to determine what to do trading-wise? Yeah, the big issue right now in the, um, in the, in the Chinese economy is the property market. We're seeing now price declines in uh, a, a number of cities around the, um, around the country. Um, you know, and what we don't want to see is we don't want to see a big collapse in the property market. We clearly don't want to have a bubble in, uh, in, in, in property prices along the lines that we've seen over the last few years. But yes. at the same time, you don't want that to fall apart rapidly. 
What's bizarre is that Hong Kong developers look like they're loading up on land again and prices mm-hmm. have started to move up. Is that a mistake given what you fear with China probably? I, I think it is. Um, I, I, I think that is because I, I think, you know, the, the effect of a deflation in the, in the property market in China will have impacts outside of, um, outside of China. Okay, Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Peter Lewis, Peter Lewis Consulting, always a pleasure. And Peter will be one of our upcoming guest hosts on the program. You've heard him a lot on this program. Well, he'll be uh, taking once a week position on the program. Peter, that'll be a lot of fun. That's once I go on September 17th. All right, briefly, the markets, the Nikkei up 24 points at 15,448. Australia's higher as well, but Seoul just a little bit lower. The Aussie index there up a third of a percent, whereas the Kospi is down just a couple of points. Makes it kind of a busier program when you've got to discharge all the duties in 27 minutes, but that's our regular format. In the weather, mainly cloudy, some showers, sunny periods, though, with a maximum temperature of 32. Back chat coming up next here on Radio 3. The news with Samantha Butler. Executive Councillor and New People's Party leader Regina Ip says she expects six months of unrest in Hong Kong until lawmakers vote on the government's political reform proposal. Yesterday, activists vowed to take civil disobedience actions after the National People's Congress Standing Committee set out a conservative framework for reform for the 2017 chief executive election. It would give voters one person, one vote only after a nominating committee had first picked up to three candidates. Speaking to RTHK, Ms. Ip accused pan-democrat lawmakers of fighting for their own political interests and not for the good of Hong Kong after they vowed to veto any government proposal based on the NPC decision. I think short term, the government will face some turbulence in LegCo where some of our colleagues will adopt an uncooperative attitude towards government proposals. Longer term, we could turn the corner if we have genuine election even though in more restrictive